0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: We were still kids trying to figure ourselves out and there was so much we didn't know about ourselves and we were just kind of brought to the brink of what we can handle. And so, you know, we were we were really messing up a lot of time <laughs> and.
2: And the, the world of medicine was unforgiving. Um, the job was unforgiving. And
1: the patients don't always make it better. You know, the, the, the beauty of what you are learning to do isn't this salve that makes everything go away. So
2: I was just like, you know what? Maybe some folks out there feel the way I do about this journey.
1: And maybe this would be really good for people to hear before they enter into this journey. And maybe those of us who are in this world, you know, reading a story like this will gain the courage to demand that we do this much better.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tony, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called I Can't Save You. And when I heard about your background, both as a doctor and having grown up in a immigrant family, I thought to myself, OK, there's a lot you and I have in common that we have to talk about. Okay. So uh on that note, before we get into the book, I want you to start by asking you, what was one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life?
2: Mm.
1: Oh man, just jumping right in. Um, let's see.
2: I guess, um, I can start with my mom. Um, I'd say if I were to just
1: choose one thing that she taught me or that I learned from her,
2: it was, it was the importance of trying to listen to your emotions
1: um which was i think a radical notion uh in my greater family of uh west indian immigrants but my mom's a a psychologist mm-hmm. and so uh she kind of brought that uh sort of vocabulary to us as kids very young and even though we resisted often um you know those lessons of interrogating yourself uh, we're always there. Yeah, and um, as far as a, a thing I learned from my dad, I mean,
0: <laughs> I wrote a whole book on that. Um, yeah, so <laughs> we'll we'll get into that. I got the the sense that the, you have a very complicated relationship with your dad. Yeah, 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 it's it's been a an interesting lifetime with him. Yeah. Um. Well. You know, it's funny you mentioned this whole idea of interrogating your emotions, because I think that probably you and I share this in common. And I'm I'm curious if if people from West Indies have a lot of overlap with Indian culture, because I know there are a lot of Indians in the West Indies. Only I I know this only because my dad watches cricket. So (laughs) the West Indies comes up a lot. But uh, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things that was really uh, apparent during my childhood was that you just didn't talk about mental health. There was this sort of huge stigma, like the sort of you know, like implicit narrative was that therapy was for crazy people. And then and I think all my parents' kids started getting divorced. Uh, you know, they started seeing people lose friends. And suddenly that narrative changed. I'm curious, one, what was that like for you? Because I, I feel like that was just one of those things we swept under the rug. We did not talk about it. It was such a taboo subject.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think we're probably very similar in that regard. Um, You know, my half my family's from Trinidad. And that's where we have a whole lot of Indian folks in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably our, where our, our crossover is. But, um, I, I think that even to this day, um, even in my generation of my family, we have young men and women who are just now starting to try to put words to these kind of complicated, Emotions and mental health issues that they have because in my parents' generation and the generation before that it was just like the vocabulary didn't exist, and not only did the vocabulary not exist but the idea of um, letting that sort of vulnerability into your into your life and into your family, I believe for a lot of folks in in probably our shared cultures uh, just wasn't an option.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It, Why do you think that is? And how do you see that changing with uh, the the next generation? Yeah. um,
1: Well, I think I, I can't speak to, you know, my great grandparents and like the folks who came way before me, but um, I think it, you know, there's, there's some similarities because, you know, whether it was, we're talking about the diaspora to the West Indies from, you know, all over the world. I mean, my family is from Africa and from China, and, you know, uh,
2: or we're talking the diaspora to, to America. Mm. Um, there's so much riding on your ability to be strong,
1: to persevere, to, be resilient, uh, in the face of most of the time, you know, your, your journey entering into a population that looks down at you, that hates you, that makes life dangerous for you. Um, and so your own mental health and your, and your emotional being culturally had to come second or, or a fifth or 10th or never, you know what I'm saying? Because, uh, we just convinced ourselves we just have bigger fish to fry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We have to survive first and foremost, and wherever we're at inside our heads, that can't be our priority and so you know i I, I found you know speaking to a lot of friends of mine and people in my family um, that that's that's often that's often the case that you know people who had very severe Mental and emotional health issues—they um, just became, you know, weird uncles or strange aunts or depressed grandmas. You know, we're well, not even depressed grandmas, but just mean grandmas. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. No one ever knew how to talk about it. Um, but you know th- that that trauma, you know, trickles down into each subsequent generation, and it's only now in my generation, in some of my cousin siblings. You know, we're finally starting to ask these questions, you know, is it normal for me to feel this way? Um, and has, have had my parents been feeling this way in their entire lives? Have my grandparents, and what does that mean for me? You know, so that's, uh, that's a short version, I guess, of why, yeah. I, of why I think that is.
0: Well, you know, it's. Interesting. So I, my, my one sort of exposure to Trinidad was when I was growing up, we had a, a family friend who was from Trinidad. And I remember going over to their house I was like, damn, these are the biggest rotis I've ever seen in my life. They're <laughs> massive. I, like, I, you know, I just oh, so yeah. distinctly remember that I was like, wait, this is like the size of a roti that people in Trinidad eat. Why are these <laughs> things so damn big? Um, but you're know, speaking of, of the culture, you know, you mentioned a sort of a, a lot of overlap. And one of the things that you say, uh, in, in the book, uh, is about th- the fact that you're sort of put on this path and and sort of funneled into it. You actually mm. say um, in the book that, you know, truth is, I don't think I've ever been called to do shit. I probably just felt funneled into this path because of my West Indian family. If you're a super kid, a bunch of upwardly mobile Jamaicans and Trinidadians will encourage you to be either a doctor like my PhD mom or a lawyer like my currently disbarred father. These professions are sure things low risk because the world will always be in need of your services and lucrative because the world respects your skill set and compensates you accordingly. Now, obviously, th- that stood out to me as somebody who was raised in an Indian American family where the you know narrative is doctor, lawyer, engineer, or failure. Uh, yep. Fortunately, my, my <laughs> sister satisfied our family quota. My mom will deny this to the day she dies, but she... Uh, told i had I told her once that i had this friend at school who said you know his mom said i won't go to my grave in peace unless you become a doctor of course he <laughs> didn't become a doctor and my mom said something similar and she'll deny that to the day she dies but uh so I, okay. I assume that the narrative around your household was very similar like to a typical sort of indian kid household based on sort of this this part of the book
1: well my uh i think my uh journey through that Was slightly different than that because I don't think that, uh, I was directly pressured by either of my parents, but the expectations were part of my culture, part of my greater family. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't have a mom or dad who was on me about, you know, you gotta be a doctor, you gotta be a lawyer. But, you know, because I just, I was a smart kid. I excelled, you know, throughout school that all that pressure to excel was really my, like, just from me. That's kind of just how I came out personality-wise. And, you know, when I looked around for options of what to do with my life, um, within my family, within, you know, my community, there were really only those options, doctor, lawyer, engineer, the same thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, like, no one ever, just like I said in the book, no one's ever, like, yeah, be an entrepreneur you know, like <laughs> come up with your own business. And, you know, I was, I was an artsy kid. I was in plays. I was doing music all the time. I loved that stuff. But, um, a career in, in music, you know, or anything like that was just, it was looked down upon by my family. And even though they never told me directly, I ended up looking down upon it too, uh-huh. you know? And so I ended up I think feeling funneled into, you know, medicine and along the way, learning to justify it to myself and, you know, beating into myself that, yeah, you really want to do this. You really love this. So go for it.
0: (laughs) I feel like that's so common among so many Indian kids. I always said, you know, people just kind of choose from the options in front of them and are blinded yeah. to the possibilities that surround them. You have these people who will commit to a life path at 18. And like, how are you yeah. making decisions about how to spend the rest of your life when you've only lived a fraction of it? This is absurd. Yeah, no,
1: I I completely agree. Um, And, you know, both my wife and I both had our, you know, second awakenings in our the late thirties and left our respective professions to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, you just, there's so much time to grow up and I don't think that was the case with our elders and the generations that came before us. Yeah. Um, we were, we just have so much more time to figure things out. Um, and so the, the age, and I think maybe this is part of you know the, uh, The millennial malaise that's, that's come over the planet. But, you know, the age of, of deciding what you want to do by age 18, especially for kids who, you know, have certain options and, and are of a certain degree of privilege. I'm not going to say that we're not, um, because, uh, you know, not everybody has those options, but in, uh, you know, kids like me who, you know, we're, we're like solidly like middle class, lower middle class, you know, growing up in Brooklyn. Um, you go to school, you go to a great school where everybody there is super genius and they can't think inside of the box for the life of them. And you can't tell any of those kids just be this, you know, <laughs> like they just, it was a, it was incredible when I went to school and I met these kids who just, think about ways to really, ways they can change the world, like actually do it and, and create this path out of absolutely nothing with the building blocks of what their family told them were possible. Uh, they just use them as long as they need to and then they throw them out. And it was amazing to me to to watch and to, to be around that. Of course, I felt like I was a fish out of water and totally inadequate around all of that genius Uh, but, um, but yeah, it really opened my eyes to what was possible when, you know, you're not saddled with, or you realize that you're not saddled with the, the safest and most conservative choice. Yeah.
3: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made BiHeart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you know, I appreciate that you brought up privilege because I think that as an part of doing this kind of work, there was a period of time in which I really kind of questioned my parents' advice about pursuing Mm -hmm. a stable career path. And then I I had sort of a moment of realization. I said, you know what? I'm looking at this completely wrong. They're giving me this advice based on a completely different context, the one that they grew up in, where I'm sure probably similar for your parents, they come to this country as immigrants and your risk is not an option, at least in India at that time, it was like you're. Outcomes are binary. It's poverty or security. So why yeah. would anybody risk poverty? Um, uh, but I think that that privilege piece is important. But one thing that I am very curious about is, uh, what your parents taught you about race? Because I, to, to be candid, I didn't look you like, look up your picture after, before mm-hmm. I read, uh, before our interview today. So when I saw you on camera, I was like, Oh, that's what you look like. I was like, yeah, that's not what I imagined in my head. I was, I, one, I just wasn't sure what to imagine based on all the things I read in the book. So Uh I'm very curious, like, what did your parents teach you about race? And, you know, did you have to deal with sort of, um, all the things that African-American kids do when it comes to race? Wow. Uh, so that's,
1: that's one of the larger questions. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can join the club, honestly, about people who are surprised to meet me. That's been my entire life.
2: But um, as far as what they told me, taught me about race, I'm trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a big question. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about what my parents tried to teach me about racism. I guess that those are my earliest memories. Yeah. Um, and what it meant to be black in a world that was predominantly white, um, in schools that were predominantly white and, you know, professions that were predominantly white. Um, I think like many, well, I can't say like many, but well, in my family, I know that and I talk about this in the book. My family tried to shield me from it. Uh, to a certain degree, tried to shield me from, you know, inequities and racism that was going on around me. And I remember, you know, very specifically um, this experience when I was a kid, um, and we were graduating from fifth grade from elementary school, and I and everybody who knew me knew that I had the highest grades in that school. Um, I was the valedictorian, you know, and all the parents knew that they knew I was the smartest kid. They knew I nailed everything. Um, but when it came down to actually
2: receiving the, the award, um, at graduation, it went to someone else. And,
1: you know, I, I was, I was stunned and I could tell, you know, my friends were like, wait, what, what just happened? And my parents were just muttering in the back. And then, you know, I asked them about it later because I was so sure. And then, you know, at that, at that moment, you know, they had a choice. They had the choice to tell me the truth and tell me that the world was going to be unfair to me for the rest of my life and to just buckle up um, and risk the, psychological damage
2: that that might do at that time to a 10-year-old. Or they could tell me a lie about what happened and tell me that, you know, I guess you you weren't the valedictorian. I guess you just got to try harder next time. And at that point, they chose to lie. And I don't know, looking back on it, if
1: there was a correct choice there, it's one of the conundrums of being a persecuted minority in America. You know, like there is no right way to navigate it. Um, but even though they lied to me, like I knew something wasn't right, you know, um, and I didn't quite know what to do with that. Um, and so I, I watched, I think, you know, we grew up in, in, in a, in a heavily, uh, West Indian populated section of Brooklyn. Um, and so, you know, our culture was kind of all around us and, you know, we celebrated it. We had close family. It was, it was great. Um, and so we didn't, or I wasn't exposed to a lot of direct, you know, persecution or understanding of what racism really meant when I was super young. But then I went to private school and I went to a really wealthy private school on the other side of Brooklyn. I had to travel for like 45, 50 minutes on the train just to get there every day. Um, and that's when I started learning some, some new things about how the world viewed me when I was,
2: you know, one of three uh or four black students in a class of
1: like 65 70 kids. Um I had to learn some stuff really quickly and still I think if I'm going to keep it uh, focused on my parents and how they prepared me or 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 tried to
2: tried to shield me from things. I think that my mom I think really did her best. To shield me from
1: the questionable and kind of intolerant and racist things that were
2: going on around me. Um, and my dad didn't really, I don't
1: remember him addressing many of the things directly or talking to me about them. But kind of like I say in the book, like his experiences from his past kind of seeped into. The lessons that he tried to teach me, and so when I talk about that, I'm talking about you know, you know, my dad was, you know, he had a he had a pretty challenging road, um, in a lot of respects. But as far as you know, race was concerned, he was, he was an outcast even in Jamaica, you know, um, because he was half Chinese, and so he got constantly called out and ridiculed you know by by Jamaican kids uh, for looking chinese um and you know i i think you understand it from the indian perspective like the colorism in in the west indies is aggressive oh yeah you know um there's a lot of colorism based self-hatred um that you know Goes both ways. You can't be too black. You can't be too light skinned. You know, it's just, it's a no win. And so my father was coming from that. And then he became an immigrant in the States and, you know, he had to deal with being black in, in, in the States, being an immigrant who didn't speak the way other black people did, the way other Americans did. He had to try to lose his accent.
2: Um, he, you know, got shaped. when he went to law school. He went to law school in
1: Indiana and, you know, he lived on the wrong side of the tracks in Indiana and was constantly, you know, terrorized by, by white people there to the point that he had to leave the school and transfer and come back to New York. Um, and I, and, and, you know, probably lots of other experiences that I, I have no idea about,
2: but he was coming. From a place of a lot of anger and a lot of resentment. And, uh, I'd say he, he wrapped a lot of his identity up
1: in the fact that he had to live in this world that white
2: people controlled, but he had absolutely no control. And so, when it came to being a
1: parent and this is me extrapolating cause this is, I, I don't know what he
2: actually thought or thinks. Um, I felt that he really tried to make warriors out of us early. Um, and, you know, tried to instill in us that, that anger, um, a lot of his misogynistic tendencies, you know,
1: that came down to me in the form of, you know, him trying to instill in me, um, that misogyny, especially where white women were concerned was totally fine. You know, I never understood it as a kid. He used to tell me this stuff all the time, but I grew up thinking, you know, white women deserve to be treated kind of a second class. And, you know, I fought against it so much, but the seeds were kind of planted there. And I, it took me decades to understand or try to understand why, why that would be, why he would say those things. And I think it was really to, you know, so that I could be an instrument to get back at, all the people that wronged him because of what he looked
2: like um so you know i, I think every every family uh, of non-white origin in America
1: has their unique story um I wouldn't, I wouldn't generalize my story to anybody. There are probably those who do, who do feel that. But I know there, there are so many different, um, flavors that, uh, you know, these, these really painful experiences can take on. Um, so I think this is just mine and, you know, it's, it's one that I hope, you know, some people, uh, can relate to and try to encourages them to try to digest it the way I did because it takes a long time. Yeah.
0: You know, one thing that I wonder about out of morbid curiosity, the Indians, I think, are very fortunate in that we're kind of lucky because we're stereotyped as sort of model minorities, right? You know, we, mm-hmm. we basically run the biggest tech companies in the world. We're all doctors and engineers. And if we own a 7-Eleven, we own like 200 of them, for those of you who don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> but, I guess, you know, for you, I'd wondered this like, are West Indians basically categorized race wise the same way African Americans are? And do you like when you, how old were you when you kind of looked in the mirror and realized, okay, wait a minute, there's a part of my identity that falls into this racial category?
1: Yeah. So I think to outsiders um, who are not Black, then West Indians fall into the same African American stereotypes. However, um i learned just how much uh black people are not a monolith when i went to college um i where i grew up everyone who was black was from the islands and their families were so i just thought you know culturally that's just what we were um and the way we kind of view ourselves is is pretty universal and then i went to college and I made friends with lots of folks who were, you know, children of West African immigrants, you know, the first generation, um, children of black people who had been in America for generations, children of the South, um, you know, and, you know, all sorts of, uh, like folks from all sorts of, uh, different cultures. And the ways in which we viewed ourselves and viewed our self-worths and viewed what our, our limitations, uh, in America and in life were, were just so vast. Um, and it really, it was really difficult for me to, to, to grasp that. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm going to generalize here a little bit, but, you know, West Indians, um, Especially those coming from certain islands. There's competition among the islands and different feelings about different ones, but Jamaicans, Trinidad, Trinidadians, especially those coming to the states around, you know, the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies,
2: you know, there's a certain pride that they had. Um, I think they, they kind of, even in a new
1: country when they were facing, you know, trouble, they, they really had held their heads high in general and thought you know yeah i heard this is the place where i can get an education and and really have a a great career and job so i'm going to go ahead and do that and whatever i encounter along the way i'm going to i'm going to keep trying because culturally that's what i was taught um you know my my grandma came here and and was she became a nurse my my grandfather came here and became kind of this, this civil, uh, civil servant that had a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, Poland local politics, you know, my dad came here and became a lawyer, you know? Um, and then you have, you know, when I got to college, I met, uh, you know, these children of West African immigrants and man,
2: were they confident, you know, like they just, there was, I was amazed at how much the race-based politics in America
1: seemed to hit them differently, if at all. Because they, it it almost seemed like, you know, friends of mine really, you know, they never thought anyone was better than them. They could go toe-to-toe with anybody, no matter what color, regardless of this country's, you know, history. They knew their worth and they were going to show everybody. And I thought that was just so fascinating. Um, because on the one hand, that's, in, that's incredible. And I didn't know, um, how to live without that kind of sense of impending doom that, that kind of rests over you as a, as a, you know, a black kid growing up in, in my experience. Um, but then, you know, in, while it was, Incredible to me. I also was fearful for them.
2: I was just like, man, what happens when your confidence takes you into, leaves you into a situation where, you know, things really get dangerous. If
1: you don't, if you don't sense that, that danger is, is all around you, how do you keep yourself safe? Um, and then, you know, I had these friends who, whose family's roots were here in the
2: States, in the South. And to me, their um, constant consciousness of
1: what white people were doing, what they were capable of, what what violence they could bring, what injustices were around the corner. really they like a lot of their identities were wrapped up seem to be wrapped up in what
2: white people say we can do and they say we can't do um and
1: when we would have discussions about the state of the world and and our ambitions and all of that sort of stuff you know when we were young and and i'm learning from everybody you know a lot of my friends would, you know, I would be confused as to how they could put limits on themselves um, in the way that they they already had, um, that the glass ceiling was just so much lower, and they almost seemed kind of beaten by a lot of it already, um, and that is a, a frame of mind that I didn't grow up with being a West Indian immigrant, um, but... You know, those are just, you know, a couple of examples, but, um, you know, I, I'm so grateful to have had that experience and made
2: these friends from all walks of life because, you know, man, it's,
1: it's so, uh, I think it just makes you a more well-rounded, um, uh, person a person of color in this in this country um to know just the breadth of the experiences uh that come to to your people because at the end of the day no matter where we had come from you know we were going to be seen or we were already seen in america as just black mm. like all of us no matter where we came from and so we were going to go ahead and and face the exact same experiences uh But we are coming at these experiences from these these very different baselines, and um, I just found it super interesting. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com.
4: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
3: Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made ByHeart a better formula for formula. Learn more at ByHeart.com.
4: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare.
0: Well, speaking of these baselines, uh, we did an episode uh, sometime I think right after the George Floyd incident uh, about what mm-hmm. it means to be black in America, weaving together uh, a bunch of different clips from various podcast guests. We had a guy named Chris Wilson here who wrote a book uh, called The Master Plan, and he had spent mm-hmm. some time in prison. and I wanted to bring that clip back to uh, mm-hmm. get your take on this. So, take a listen. Okay, folks, like when from the grassroots level. Sometimes at least, like in, in these neighborhoods, can't even comp- comprehend like these policies that are put in place. You can look at something like the 1994 Crime Bill Act that was put in place, and all these people started getting locked up and in, in Manitou sentences for crack versus like powdered cocaine, and all these things that were put in place was deliberate. And then you can look at CUD with the housing practices of not um, allowing folks to get home loans based on their race, or just a whole bunch of stuff, and. It makes a huge difference when you talk about, you know, generating wealth for community or improving stuff. And it's like that all that stuff is deliberate, though. It's all on purpose.
2: What do you make of that? I think that's completely true. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that um, I think he's right on. I think that. The. I mean. You know, the baseline of America is that it's a country built on, you know, uh,
1: racist ideals and and policies. Um,
2: And those policies uh, have continued over the years. They've been refined. Um, They're just kind of
1: baked into into the way this country works. Um, It's all just systemic. Um and so yeah, i I see no falsehood in what in what Chris just just said. um yeah, th- there's so many systems that have been deliberately erected to uh,
2: keep black people in a lower station in America
0: let's talk specifically about your time uh, at Harvard. I think there was one thing that struck me that you said about Harvard, and I I kind of related as a Berkeley undergrad to this statement. You said, for all its mystique and clout, in the end, I'm pretty sure Harvard is nothing more than a really expensive, fucked up social experiment for smart kids. Everyone on the planet knows the name Harvard. Lots of people dream of going there. And because the school accepts fewer than 5% of its 60,000 valedictorian applicants each year. Everyone assumes that the kids who make the cut are super geniuses, and that includes the kids who are accepted. No student would ever say it out loud, but each of us assumed that the student sitting next to us was the next Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking or Barack Obama. And that shit right there was stressful because at the end of the day, we were teenagers. Uh, Being exposed as the one non-genius who'd managed to slip through the cracks was a constant source of anxiety for all of us. And I always have thought to myself, I'm the person who slipped through the cracks for yeah. Berkeley's admissions <laughs> policy. There's, it, it has never made sense to me that I got in. Um, oh, yeah. Talk to me about that. And because I, I think that this is like, uh, this is not even about race. This is really a uh, commentary on the state of our current education system.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I think. I, even, even because Harvard was, I can only speak to my
1: experience, but but Harvard was, was so interesting because of that, all the mystique and, and all of that stuff. I would assume that more so than at other institutions, um, once you arrive, um, you feel like you have to find your place in this sea of geniuses because everybody has to be a super genius to get here. And so where, where, where do you fit? Um, and you know, it's no one, you know, I go on to say, you know, from that passage, like none of us, none of us talk about, um, academics, you know, none of us will talk about our grades, you know, how well we're doing and, and that sort of
2: thing. Um, and so none of us gets any, Let's see. Yeah. None of us, we all feel isolated. I think is is what I mean to
1: say because no one talks about the anxiety that clearly everyone must be having. Um, everyone feels alone and you're, you're trying to figure out just, okay, everyone's a genius at something. What am I a genius at? I'm not sure. There's the things I was really good at in high school. I'm pretty mediocre at here. So where do I, how do I start over? You know, it seems like everyone else has this figured out. So that was, that was really challenging. And, you know, I didn't realize the degree to which, you know, my roommates who I always looked at as way smarter than me and just always had their stuff together. um, They were always feeling the same way too. And we still didn't talk about it even when, you know, sophomore year, we all got super depressed and, you know, like I grew, I grew out this like really sloppy afro and never shaved and my other buddy like shaved his head and had a goatee for a while, but then, you know, realized goatees were gross and got rid of it. And this, you know, we were listening to like Ben Fold's five, like every night, The real, just sad stuff, you know, and, but, but, you know. We didn't talk about why we might be sad. We were just all, you know, in a massive rut. And I think that that sophomore sadness is a, is actually a pretty widespread thing in, in undergrad college. Um, a lot of people go through it, but even then we wouldn't confide in each other, the, the stuff that was really going on. We were just sad and we just, we'd party harder and we'd, you know, you know, do, you know, really make really poor decisions together more often. Um, It was really, it was really fascinating looking back on, but, um, but yeah, I think that's, that, that's one of the consequences of, of, of going to one of these highly, highly competitive schools.
0: Well, walk me through the sort of trajectory from Harvard to becoming a doctor to writing this book. Like what was the impetus for writing this book? And then let's finish this up by talking about your relationship with your dad, because I think that seems to me like really in a lot of ways, what this book was about. Sure. Um, yeah. So short timeline. Uh, um, so I, I did all my
1: pre-med classes while I was in college. Um, and after college, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go to med school. I actually took uh, a couple of years off. I was actually a, a high school teacher for a little while in, in the middle of Massachusetts. And pretty quickly realized, like, even though I loved teaching, you know, I realized it wasn't, teaching that capacity wasn't for me long-term. And so I, I looked back at um, the med school idea and kind of went uh, full bore on it. And so I applied to med school the next year, um, ended up uh, doing med school down south in Atlanta at Emory. Um, and, you know, after that, You know, and uh, and we can. I don't want to go into all the stuff that happened in med school, but med school was hard, and (laughs) I um ended up getting matched into ear, nose, and throat surgery, where I did my training in Detroit. So I packed up and moved to Detroit. Um, and residency training for ear, nose, throat surgery is five years long, and residency is way harder than med school, and so (laughs) I. I think I was, I actually remember the day that I realized I had to write this book and it was in the middle of residency. Um, and I was in the middle of a pretty major depression episode and I was sitting there. I was laying there. And actually, this part's in the book. I don't want to spoil it, but it's the, the, in the middle of the book. Um, I was alone, I, I, I had been asked to leave my job, I just failed this massive test that I needed to not fail. Um, and I'd been having a lot of really dark thoughts um, about myself and my worth and in my life. And so luckily I had just started some medication
2: for this depression episode and as I kind of as the medication worked and the fog sort of burned up, I sat myself down and, and said, you know,
1: you need a reason to keep going. You need a reason to go back to that place that seems to want to kill you so very much. Um, or you need to quit. Um, and so what's your reason for
2: staying? And. I sat there and I realized that, you know, I was totally
1: unprepared for what the world of medical training and of medicine was going to be. Um, I'd read a lot of books. I'd read a lot of memoirs. I'd read a lot, you know, by doctors and, you know, I just felt that they hadn't given me Truth enough to be prepared for the journey that I was on. Um, I think that in the end, doctors, when they, when they write stories about themselves in general, they want to look good at the end of the day. They want to look good to the reader. Um, they still want the world to look up to them. Um, and so that's how these narratives have often been painted. Um, that and They often want to tell the reader that despite whatever difficulties they faced along the way, medicine and their patients saved them, you know, their love for the medicine, their love for their calling,
2: um, was, ended up being the most important thing. And that's what got them through. And I thought it was bullshit
1: you know, because that wasn't what I experienced. That wasn't what my friends who were right there with me had experienced. Like we were miserable and we were like, just being stripped of everything that made us ourselves every single day. Um, and we weren't sleeping, we're barely eating when we're eating, we're eating trash, you know, we're like, you know, any, any vices, any broken pieces of you that, uh, were part of you before you started the journey, um, all your defenses against them getting out get stripped away. And so we're all just acting out in whatever way, you know, uh, we could. Because we were still kids trying to figure ourselves out and there was so much we didn't know about ourselves and we were just kind of brought to the brink of what we can handle. And so... You know, we were we were really messing up a lot of time. (laughs) And and the the world of medicine was unforgiving. Um, the job was unforgiving, and the patients don't always make it better. You know, the, the the beauty of what you are learning to do isn't this salve that makes everything go away. So I was just like, you know what?
2: Maybe some folks out there feel the way I do about this journey. And maybe this would be
1: really good for people to hear before they enter into this journey. And maybe those of us who are in this world, you know, reading a story like this, will will gain the courage to demand that we do this much better. Um, and so that was kind of the the genesis of it. And from that point on, you know, I just started making notes, like keeping journals of my experiences for the next couple, two and a half years, um, trying to remember these moments that I knew would be really important, whether they were highs or lows. And then I started writing it after I graduated and spent, you know, seven years writing the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the that's the birth of the book.
0: I, I appreciate that so much because I, I think you're right. You know, I've read a lot of those, those medical memoirs myself, like all the ones that Atul Gawande has written, as well mm-hmm. as the ones by Paul Kalanthi. And I, you're right. Like in, in yeah. this book, I got a very sort of different picture. Uh, I was like, oh, so all these people who are running around in, in scrubs are not these responsible members of society that we picture them to be, you know, when, yeah. when they're treating us, they're as screwed up as the rest of us. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's really hard for doctors to be vulnerable
1: unless they're sick and dying. Yeah. You know, that's that's the closest that I see them get on the page.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I saw the experience with my sister and she she basically said, you get thrown in the deep end of the pool and she's like, and you get there the first day, she's like, you don't know jack shit, despite <laughs> being in med school for four years. She's like, it's, you're, you know, just thrown in the deep end and clueless.
1: Your sister
0: is 100% correct. <laughs> well, let's finish this up about by talking about your father because there was yeah. one thing in particular about this relationship with your father that struck me uh, that you said towards the end of the book. You said, "No matter what I accomplish in my life or who I become, no matter how faithfully I demonstrate his traits or how defiantly I strive to embody the opposite, no matter what, I'm never important enough to him, he doesn't want me So mm. talk to me about this relationship with your dad.
2: Yeah, um. Well, it took me a while to realize
1: that the backbone of the story that I wanted to tell was about my relationship with my dad um, because I've gone through so many different phases of, over the course of my life and all I ever wanted was peace uh, with the relationship
2: and I just had no idea how to get there and I didn't have the, the tools. Um, but, you know, the story of me and my dad is kind of interesting because
1: he's not like a dad who was never there. Um and he also wasn't super present. So he's kind of somewhere in the middle, which made it uh uniquely uh difficult for us because he was he we grew up with him until we were like I was like you know, in my late teens, um, but he's, he was never really there, um, and never really present for his kids. And I learned down the line that a lot of that was due to, you know, his pretty severe, you know, mental health issues and, you know, his issues with addiction You know, he was, he was a gambling addict. And that was something that was kept from us for a really long time. Um, And it was something that, um, you know, was this really malevolent force in our household because no matter what time with us was never as important as his addiction. Um, and when you don't even know that there's an addiction as a kid, you know, it just the the experience is so painful and so empty. Um, you're just hoping that you know maybe if i do this maybe if i say this maybe if i excel in this way you know you know he'll he'll pay more attention he'll want me around he'll show me this love that i i hear other people get from their parents um and then you know i grew up a little bit um when my parents got divorced and i was like in my teens and early 20s um i learned about kind of the depth of what he'd been navigating and um, the ways in which he treated us and and my mom and people around him and I just got so angry um, and I just walked around with this anger for
2: just years um, and it would seep into, you know, the way I navigated
1: the world, the way I... uh you know sabotaged myself uh the way i went into relationships and just left destruction in my wake you know um he was all over that stuff uh because i just i was trying to run so hard from what i thought he was but i had no idea where i was running to i got you know the, something i used to say to, uh to my early therapist was that I just, I don't know how to be what I've never seen. You know, I know all about what I don't want to be,
2: but I don't know how that helps me become who I want to be. Um, and so that was kind of this
1: underlying conundrum in my head for just years, um, along with all this anger. And I had to get to a point where uh, I could let that anger go. And getting to that point was really difficult. I had to confront my dad about how I was feeling. And and I thought that, that confronting him and saying that stuff out loud was going to be the key uh, to me kind of, you know, stepping forward. But it was really just a very small first step. Because in the end, you know, I had I, I even though I I let go of the anger, I kind of understood where he was coming from, and it was his story is a really it's a really sad story. Um, I just kept holding out hope that someday my father would act like my father. You know, someday he might get better. Someday he might realize. That he could just pick up the phone and call me and I'd pick up. Um, and maybe that would be the piece that was missing, uh, for me.
2: But, you know, that turned out not to be the entire truth. Um, it took a really long time. I had to learn who I
1: was and what I wanted to be independent. Of him I had to step out of this idea that I was just like this embodiment of his worst qualities and his mistakes I thought for so long that you know genetically because he was depressed because he was an addict you know it was only a matter of time before that happened to me you know it was only a matter of time before I got into a relationship and then destroyed it you know um it was only a matter like The idea of being a father was my biggest fear, you know, for my entire life, because I just thought there was no way I could do it in a way that didn't end up in a disaster. And I had to really painfully and, and with a lot of, of work, kind of beat those notions out of myself and,
2: and learn that um, I had, despite myself, been embodying all the traits that I was searching for for years. You know, um, I'd been the person I wanted to grow up to be independent of him. And, and in the end, you know, If he was gone, if I, you know, if he's really gone, like,
1: it wasn't going to be because he left me. It was going to be because
2: I chose to let him go from a place of acceptance um, of both him and myself. Um, And I think that's kind of
1: the whole journey. and for me, I realized, you know, as I was putting this book together, that medicine and becoming a doctor and going through all the the horrors therein is really just the context for, for this journey, for my journey of kind of figuring myself out, figuring out, uh, you know, the things holding me back as far as the, the, the relationship with my dad and, um, you know, I had like without medicine to kind of crush me and bring me as low as possible. I don't know that I would have built myself back up in
0: the way that I wanted to. Amazing. Well, this has been just absolutely fantastic and eye-opening and thought-provoking. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think
2: The thing that makes us unmistakable is when we allow ourselves to listen, truly listen to who we are and who we've always been. Um, We all pop out
1: into this world, I believe, with our personalities completely intact and the world just needs to kind of get out of the way, but often the world doesn't. And lots of people, lots of things, lots of forces act on us, traumatize us, kind of take away from who we were meant to be, who we, who we are deep down. Um, and I think finding your way back to the things that you love, the things that you're passionate about, the things that have always made you tick since you were a baby. Um, and letting those things out into the world will make you unmistakable.
0: Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, the book, your work and everything you're up to?
1: Yeah, well, I am on Twitter, um, as many of us are. So you can search my name, Anthony Chinqui, and my handle is at CQ underscore underscore MD. And that's where I post a lot of my book related stuff. And I don't post a lot of my thoughts on the world, but uh, sometimes I do. And I like to think they're sometimes interesting. So that's the best way to find me.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
2: Hold up.